firstly, they have failed to detect the original malware that came in probably via email. Then it must have been possible to take over a computer once the software was on the computer. Then there must be security and weaknesses on their network that allow it to spread. The DHB must have either had no or inadequate what's called intrusion detection. Their network wasn't segmented. And then it's apparently possible to exfiltrate, that's steal, large amounts of data. And finally, they haven't designed their network to be malware-proof in the sense that it's possible to encrypt stuff so that it's not easy to get back. Now, that's a long list of failures. One of the country's biggest DHBs brought to its knees. Elective surgeries have been postponed and the Waikato DHB is thrown into chaos due to a cyber attack that's believed to have come from outside New Zealand. The ransomware cyber attack was a type of ransomware called Conti. That is the same kind of software that paralysed the national health system in Ireland. Normally it's uh, the worst thing they've ever faced. Um, They have generally never had to deal with an incident of this type before and it is quite devastating uh, to their daily operations. I'm Emile Donovan and today on The Detail, what happened? How did it happen? Who stole all this data and what do they want? And what does this tell us about IT practices at our biggest institutions? Amy Williams has been covering this story for RNZ News. I asked her how it unfolded. So Tuesday last week, the DHB posted on its Facebook page. We'd got wind of it in the newsroom, and then we saw the DHB had posted on its Facebook page saying that all its phone and computer systems were out of action and it was trying to figure out what had happened or what was behind it. A bit later on, around midday, it posted that it appeared that it was a cyber security incident of some kind. And it was at that point that it all became a bit more serious. It appears that someone who works at Waikato DHB has opened an email that has an attachment on it. And when they did that, they may not have realised straight away that that attachment has basically unleashed a bug into the system. What the DHB's done is when it realised that a bug's been released, it's effectively gone, whoa, we better shut down our systems, put it all into quarantine, and see how much damage this has done. Okay. What we do know now that we didn't know initially was where the data had been seized and uh-huh. what, what was involved. It's patient data, employees' data, important information. And so, yes, we do know now that it's effectively a phishing scam. So the email's opened up, it unleashes a bug into the system, and that allows the cyber criminals in mm-hmm. to access information. A group purporting to be responsible for the cyber attack on the Waikato DHB has emailed RNZ saying it has personal information of patients and employees. The email, which RNZ has sent on to police, says it gave the DHB seven days to respond. It says without the group's help, the DHB will have to restore the network completely. Have the authorities in New Zealand, whether it's the government or the authorities in charge of Waikato DHB, have they been in touch with whoever it was who perpetrated this attack? We don't know whether they've been in touch with these cyber criminals or not. They're not telling us much about what's happening behind the scenes. Uh, We've asked a number of questions, but in some ways it feels like you come up against a bit of a wall of silence in terms of what they will say. How has this hack affected the day-to-day running of hospitals in the Waikato DHB catchment? 
basically from the start there's quite a big catchment. It's almost half a million people who live in this area. There's five hospitals, including the regional hospitals, Thames, for example. So from the start, only urgent patients were asked to turn up at ED. Most outpatient clinics have been running, with only a couple of exceptions, and most elective surgeries are going ahead. But staff, they don't know who's actually booked in to come for an appointment, so they're asking people to print out their appointment letters and come so they know they can match them to whatever doctor they're seeing or service. And also doctors can't access patients' past notes. Mm. So they're really operating on a paper-based system. They got out their whiteboards, they exchanged personal cell phone numbers, they started uh, walking lab results and drugs to the wards because they couldn't use the computer systems to send what they need to send. It has slowed everything down. As you can imagine, um, we are highly dependent on our computer systems for efficiency, but um, yeah, the staff are rising to the challenge. One doctor I talked to described it as going back 30 years. Mm. She said the younger staff members she works with have been saying to her, is this, th- is this like it was for you when you first started out? <laughs> you know, And she's saying, yes, it, it is actually, but what she realises now is that these are tools that they use that have made them very efficient. And so things are working much more slowly. Some of the nurses that I was speaking to, especially last night, were really concerned about could they cope if they didn't receive their full payment. So there is a certain degree of anxiety and frustration. You have been speaking to doctors and people who work in the DHB. How are they feeling about this? Is there a vibe of nervousness around what comes next? I guess it's kind of uncharted territory in a sense. Yeah, and even speaking with doctors at the DHB, well, that's a hard task because to some extent they're gagged from talking to the media. Mm. But what we're hearing is that the doctors are carrying on, they're doing the best they can, but yes, they're nervous about the situation and how long it's going to stretch on for. One doctor I've been in contact with said that they think it's going to take weeks. Have some patients been moved to other places to continue receiving treatment. I think there are ideas to take some cancer patients to Australia to continue receiving treatment. That's correct. So cancer patients, especially radiation therapy, those receiving radiation therapy are among the, I guess you'd say the most worst affected by this cyber attack. Uh, So radiation therapy machines, they cannot operate at all at the DHBs. So there have been no patients treated with radiation therapy since the cyber attack. So these patients are being treated privately at Tauranga and Wellington. Auckland's taking the acute, the most serious patients. I've spoken with Deborah Powell, who's the secretary and representative of two of the unions representing doctors and specialists, and she says that they are looking at Australia as an option, but it's not needed just yet. There are, of course, still questions around this cyber attack. Who did it, why they did it, how they did it, and how a cyber attack can be prevented in the future. And to answer those, we needed an expert of our own. So my name's Dave Parry, and I'm Professor of Computer Science at AUT. What sort of information do DHBs keep in their systems? Uh, a huge, huge range of information, not just what we normally think of sort of patient records, so information about details of the patients, uh, addresses and names and things like that, what sort of um, conditions they've got, things like lab results, things like x-rays, things like the appointment history, 
issues around you know what what what's, uh, maybe what the doctors are writing about uh, what they think is going on with the patient all sorts of information everything to do with managing how people are seen in in the hospital network and so so the, a lot of that is sort of very operational stuff so you know when there's next appointment etc mm. but then there's also the the background of, of what your medical history looks like uh, and then there'll also be information about what what's planning what's expected to happen you know what what are the ideas that people have got about maybe diagnosing you or or treating you in the future there's widespread alarm about what will become of highly sensitive patient and staff information that hackers claim to have stolen from Waikato DHB. I can see how it would be very uncomfortable or discomforting for people to know that that information mm. is in someone else's hands. But can it actually be used, that information, to actually cause harm? Really, the, the, the most credible way that that could happen is if somebody gets hold of it who's then trying to basically con you somehow. So they, told, they call it social engineering, this idea that somebody who's a criminal is contacting you, and because they've got so many details about you, you believe that they are who they say they are. So, so you know, something like, oh, you know, from your appointment last week, we, oh, you left this behind. Can you just send us your bank details so we can put the money back in or something like that? I mean, that's a very crude attack. But So these are the main sort of things. There's possibility in some cases, I suppose, of some sort of blackmail attack if if the if there's sort of clinical details that are that are a bit embarrassing or whatever. That's probably unlikely. What one of the things to remember about about these sort of ransomware type attacks or any sort of attacks is often the the, the attackers get all sorts of fairly unconnected data. So so they might have say your name and address or something, and then they might have your I don't know your hemoglobin results, or they might have something about you know sort of you got free parking for the next three appointments or or some other data, which is very hard to make sense of. These things only really make sense when they're put together in the, in the DHB systems, when people are looking at them and asking good questions about them. Uh, and so it may be that um, there'll be some things which, which are sort of fairly clear would be embarrassing, but a lot of stuff really wouldn't make any sense uh, to an attacker. Okay, so this is less a situation of we have your pet guinea pig and if you don't give us a million bucks we're going to kill it and more a situation of we have your driver's license and your community card and your library card and if you don't give us a million bucks we might sign you up to a whole bunch of magazines or something like that i mean that's a crude metaphor but you get where i'm getting that absolutely it's a lot more to do with um getting a better model of you uh and and usually fooling you into thinking that you're talking to somebody who has the right to that information and hence you can you can safely give them other information than than it is about there's a particular thing about your you know your treatment or whatever that we're going to somehow disrupt and you're going to die of that that that's very unlikely public hospitals in the Waikato region are into their second day now without IT systems following a major ransomware cyber attack We've heard that computer and phone systems shut down. We've heard that some forms of radiotherapy can't go ahead due to this hack. Why is that? How are those linked into the IT system at the DHB? So, so like a lot of modern phone systems, they're basically called voice over IP. So it's effectively it's, an, it's a computer network, which when you talk on the handset, converts that into digital signals, and then it sends it uh, through to the to the um, network and then it comes out the other end at the other phone line. So if you have a situation where you're concerned that there are um, some sort of uh, malware, some sort of viruses on the network, you want to stop all of those network communications. So so even things like the phone, although presumably the phone itself doesn't matter particularly 
by still running that phone network, you're, you've got an open gateway for data to travel, and it may be that the, the malware or the attacking software is somehow using those those approaches and is able to then put itself into the, the network backbone uh, that way. Um, what about actual medical equipment? Is some medical equipment unusable while this data has been compromised? Yes. I mean, uh, you've given the example of radiotherapy machines, and, and, that, and these things are very, very good examples because... Effectively, what the radiotherapy machine does is it takes the details of of the of the patient, um, including things like CT scans, MRI scans, and things like that. Uh, any information you've got about the location of the tumor and and the sensitivity of the patient to radiation, etc., and then converts that to a set of of um, plans for the machine itself to 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 use the radiation in different parts of of the body at different angles at different times. That doesn't get stored on the radiotherapy machine itself. It, it takes that data from the the other systems. Which is a good thing because you don't want to have older information on the radiotherapy machine. You want the latest information. But, of course, when you are concerned that there might be uh, malware around your network, then you don't want this communication to be happening. You particularly don't want to sort of lodge some sort of malicious software on the radiotherapy machine, which has got a computer in it, obviously, as well. Mm. Because because if that starts, say, deleting files as they come in, then, then you're going to have to reboot the machine, and it's going to be very difficult. So is this one of those situations where there are many wonderful things about computers and their ability to store data when it comes to things like medicine, which are very data-heavy. And so the ability to store all of this data in computers has been great all in all, but when that system is compromised, it has a big effect. Absolutely. That's 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 right. I mean, it, it's pretty much a sort of a truism where you say that the, 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 the reverse of being useful is that it's also vulnerable if it's not there. And one of the things that comes up with health systems generally, of course, is that we talk about the health system, but it's not really a system. It's a system of systems. There's mm-hmm. lots of each department, each each GP, surgery, all these things are linked to each other in different ways. And the way that uh, health IT has developed over time, it, it, it would be very, very difficult to build a single system that runs everything. There are things out there that do that, but they tend to be both very expensive and also often have issues around the quality, etc. Mm. So what's tended to happen is that each part of a hospital and each part of the health system will have its own system. So you might have the booking system for the diabetes clinic and the, the system that runs the, the surgical bookings for the operating theatres and the system that runs so the, the x-ray machines, etc. So there's a very large number of different IT systems within a hospital environment. And so looking after all of those is a very complex process. And then if they are potentially compromised or compromised, you know they're compromised, then restoring them after that becomes not just a question of that particular system, but making sure that everything fits together as as it comes back together again. And that's that's a hard thing to do. The people who are behind this... You mentioned the seven-day deadline, which was today, and they say here that they have deleted most of the backup. Um, they say, we attacked the DHB, and they say they are giving them one more day. Uh, so it's a difficult situation. We don't want to give too much air to them. What do we think that they want? Oh, they want the money. I mean, they're, they're very much criminal gangs. In fact, there's some sort of rumours going around that, that with some of the other instances, they, they made it extremely clear that they weren't government-related. Uh, so, yeah, they're criminal gangs. They're, they're groups of people who are technically very, very skilled, but also they are often sort of subcontracted by these gangs to, to do this work, and they might move between gangs. There's some talk, in fact, that some of the people actually doing the technical work aren't actually aware that they're actually doing 
um, ransomware that they, they don't think it's illegitimate what they're doing. They think they're doing a normal computing job. I don't know if that's true or not. But the way these, these things work and the way that they become sort of successful in, in the sort of criminal sense is that by separating out the tasks, so the people who do the, the hacking and look out for vulnerabilities and the people who build the software that exploits those vulnerabilities and the people who decide who they're going to attack and, and how you're going to send out the ransoms are all different and mm-hmm. come together for particular jobs in some ways. So they want, we, we think that they want money. Yeah. What's your view on the ransom? Uh, Andrew Little is adamant not to pay. Do you have a view? It's entirely correct. You cannot pay. The moment you start paying, then you set yourself up for every other DHB, but every private organisation uh, ending up being hacked. What normally happens in a situation like this? Well, um, again, it's generally uh, whenever somebody pays a ransom and anything, one of the priorities for everybody is to is to keep that as quiet as possible. So, so you can say that we don't know how often ransom is paid because people don't tell us. Mm-hmm. Um, but often the ransom is paid. Uh, we've had examples previously where that's been declared. And what in the most of these ransomware attacks, what they do is they they will encrypt these uh, your files on your system. So that means that uh, you can't access them. Uh, and when you pay the ransom, they'll give you the the key or the effectively the sort of password type things to decrypt those files so you can start up again. And they may also, ha- if they've stolen files, they may assure you that they've destroyed them. I mean, I don't know how much assurance you take, but that's what they say. Surely that would suit a dangerous precedent, though. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, there's clearly no reason for their existence if, if they can't make some money out of these sort of things. And so every time a ransom is paid, then um, it might be a short-term benefit for the particular uh, person who's been attacked, but obviously long-term it just means that the more gangs get involved. We've seen this happen in Scotland recently. Environmental regulator, the Scottish Environment Protection Agency, says criminals are demanding a ransom to unlock its digital systems, which have been subjected to a cyber attack since Christmas Eve. In Ireland recently. The HSE says it's working to contain a very sophisticated human-operated ransomware attack on its IT systems. The attack is affecting both national and local health systems. The administrators of the Colonial Oil Pipeline in America. John, I can confirm that Colonial Pipeline did in fact pay a ransom. This according to a source familiar with the situation, Colonial Pipeline, uh, paying a ransom to the criminal hackers who shut down their systems last week. Is this happening more often? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So, so the, in the last sort of two years or so, there's been a large increase. Again, very hard to get real figures out of this because a lot of people, um, particularly financial institutions, are very reluctant to reveal that they've been attacked. Um, but, yes, we've seen a very large increase. I mean, people are talking about you know 50% increase in these sort of attacks uh, around the world, partly probably because of COVID. There's more sort of stuff going on uh, online. Probably also because of COVID in that because more people are working remotely, they may be a bit, little bit uh, less well controlled in terms of security if they're working from home as opposed to working uh, in the office. Uh, and also, I think almost certainly that the, the people who are running these attacks are seeing that they're getting you know, a decent amount of money coming in. So that encourages them to do more. Waikato DHB is a big organisation in New Zealand. I think it's the fourth biggest DHB by population size in the country. How has this happened to such a big organisation here? I mean, is that damning in itself? I think the, the, one of the uh, first thing I'd like to say is that I think Waikato have done a very, very good job in trying to respond to this. I mean, that you know, it's clearly not there. They didn't cause the problem. Somebody else did. But, but I think one of the issues 
is that they are these things are very difficult to defend against when you've got something like a DHB which has to interact with the outside world. So we often think about banks and things like that. Now, banks have got very, very controlled access to the outside world. You, you, know, you really don't have uh, a lot of input into, into bank systems, whereas a DHB is running different hospitals, running lots of different systems, running things which are linking to GP practices and, and patients and all sorts of things. And so it, it's more open to the outside world than, than a lot of other organisations. And also, as I was saying before, that, that this whole thing of this mixture of different systems, when you look at how, how things develop, of course, somebody wants a new system for a new clinic or something, and it's great, then you don't, you don't necessarily retire all the other systems and say, right, we're all just going to use this one. So you end up with lots of different systems running at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that makes life more difficult for the security people because then they've got to look at how they can put the patches and the enforce security over lots of different software packages, some of which are relatively old. Um, so there's a, just an awful lot of work in just maintaining these things, making the things work. And so a lot of the sort of you know, classic things you do, which is basically limit access from outside uh, computers, limit access internally between systems and, and control the sort of thing, and have very strict um, monitor systems running to see if there's any unusual behavior going on, they can do this to a certain extent, but because they're, because they're such a diverse group of um, packages and software systems, it's very hard to do that compared to somewhere where, where it's just one system and, and you just know what it's doing. What's the right way to respond to this? I think what, 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 what's being done at the moment, uh, as I say, Waikato, uh, I think, are really doing an excellent job. They're, they're, they've, they've let people know. Uh, they're going off and they'll be going through the process of cleaning the system, uh, testing the system, getting the system back up again, uh, probably you know, pretty cautiously uh, for good reason. You don't want health data to be corrupted or misleading or whatever. Um, and I think from then on, that there's, there's a couple of sort of major ways to respond. There's obviously the defensive work about making systems more secure and, and probably looking at whether we need all these different software packages and different systems. And I, I'm really in favor of the, the, the sort of national um, DHB, national system approach, because 20 DHBs all trying to run their own systems makes for a very, very complex system, a system that's relatively hard to defend. Oh. This probably can't go on like it is. We're going to have have a change, um, and I don't see technically a a perfect solution to, to this coming up soon. Any system which has people in it is going to have failures from people, which is you know just normal life. You know, people are in state, and the the ability to attack different software packages when we're moving so quickly in software and we're using using it for so much and it's becoming so critical. So the the sort of political and the legal side is going to be uh, becoming more important. And that really is international relations. I think that that's where that's going to come from. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I'm obviously going to say that we should invest more in cybersecurity and, you know, universities training people and stuff like that. But but that's good. But really, we, we're going to have to have an international consensus on the fact that this just isn't acceptable. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Blair Stagpool and produced by Jesse Chang and Alexia Russell. And thanks to Amy Williams and Dave Perry. Ka kite anō.